Welcome to Essential Ethics and our highlight series from the 2021 12th National Paediatric Bioethics Conference, which was brought to you by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre in September 2021. The conference theme was Deciding with Children. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. In this podcast, we hear from Professor Doug Diekema, Physician and Director of Education at the Truman Katz Centre for Paediatric Bioethics at Seattle Children's Hospital. Doug delivered the Jill Sewell Plenary Lecture to open the conference. His presentation titled, Involving Children in Decision-Making, Why It Matters and How Best to Do It. Let's listen to Doug as he considers a theoretical and practical approach to deciding with children. When we talk about children being involved in decision-making, that has to be centered in the context of parental decision-making authority. And then from there, I'm going to talk about um, sort of the historical origins of assent, which, um, which were primarily in the research arena, but, but kind of grew up alongside that in the clinical context and, and actually goes back, I think, further than many people recognize. And, uh, and then talk about assent in that clinical context and what I think it should mean and how we should be interpreting it. And then finally, um, I am going to say a few words about the adolescent patient and, and how uh, an adolescent patient might differ from younger minors uh, in the way we think about this. And um, again, we'll be unpacking a lot of this over the next three days. So I like to start with a case, and the case I'm going to use is is of an adolescent, but but one who um, was really sort of in the younger adolescent years, a 14 year old named Dennis, who um, who had uh, uh, been raised in his younger years by his parents, both of whom uh, became addicted to drugs and and found themselves incapable of really. Uh, providing him with the kind of um, uh, uh, supervision he needed. And, and so he was removed from their custody and placed in the custody of an aunt who became his legal guardian. She happened to be a member of the Jehovah's Witness Church. And I suspect most, if not all of you know, that one tenet of that religion is, is, um, uh, is to perceive any uh, intake of blood to be unclean. And so blood transfusions are uh, considered uh, not an appropriate application of their faith to accept a blood transfusion. And they are taught um, early on in the church that um, they should refuse blood transfusions and do so vigorously. Um, Dennis <clears throat> um, started going to church with his aunt. He apparently liked what he was hearing. He developed a community of people he uh, enjoyed being with at the church and expressed a desire to become a member. And, and shortly after that was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, but with a decent outcome. Um, with chemotherapy, uh, he was estimated to have approximately a 70% chance of cure at five years. And, but, but as I think you all know, chemotherapy um, is destructive of, of red blood cells and platelets and white blood cells. And uh, in the time it takes for the body to regenerate those to the point where a patient can survive, transfusions need to be administered. 
And so the two really cannot be seen as exclusive from uh, each other. Um, Dennis was started on chemotherapy and when his counts first started to drop after that first round of chemotherapy, uh, the issue of transfusions was raised and um, his aunt refused to give consent as, and, as did Dennis who uh, was quite insistent uh, in his own voice in not wanting transfusions even though he knew that would potentially result in his death. And I'm gonna just um, <laughs> cut off the questions that I, I can see coming because I get asked this every time I present this case and that is, well, wasn't this foreseeable? Couldn't this discussion have occurred before chemotherapy? And um, quite honestly, I don't, know, um, I don't know the extent to what that was discussed in the clinical realm. I, I find it hard to believe that transfusions didn't enter the initial consent process, um, but I also don't know um, what kind of discussion ensued and whether uh, the family, uh, Dennis and his aunt had just at the time chosen not to raise objections, but did when presented with that choice. Um, so uh, starting from that case, I, <clears throat> I wanna uh, start with this general notion of parental authority. Um, and, and in Dennis's case, it's his aunt who really is serving the role of um, a parent. She is his legal guardian. She has the authority to make medical decisions for him. And, um, you know, in most places, certainly in the world of ethics, where principles like respect for persons and autonomy um, are important, the, the notion of informed consent has uh, be become a very strong moral and, and sort of legal uh, approach. And, and when we talk about surrogate decision-making, uh, we generally vest that same authority in legal guardians. And there is legal grounding for that in most countries and, 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 and social reasons as well. There are strong social reasons for protecting the, the authority or, or, or the, the autonomy of families, for example, to make decisions that, that uh, are important within that family. So there are, there are good reasons to have uh, this notion of parental authority as at least a starting point. And, but, but we also have recognized with, certainly with children and, and even to some degree with adults who require a surrogate to make decisions that, that that guardian or parental authority is not unrestricted, that there are limits that a parent can't make any decision on behalf of a child and that the state, um, the government can intervene when a child is endangered. Um, and so one of the questions is, well, what are those limits of parental authority then? And um, there are really two of them. The first is parental incompetence. If, for example, you could demonstrate that Dennis's aunt or a parent is um, truly, in the legal sense, incompetent to make decisions, does not have the capacity to make decisions on behalf of the child, uh, then you could presumably argue that that parent should not be making those decisions and the state should. Um, and, and, and I think it's important to mention this as a possibility, although I have to admit, I'm not aware of any cases where this has actually been the reason given for trying to interfere with a parental decision. Um, even though, um, even in my own experience, I'm quite certain that I have dealt with parents who would not meet the qualifications for having made competent decisions, um, you know, somewhat cynically. I think the reason we usually don't interfere in those cases is the parents 
are not disagreeing with us. They're not doing anything that we, or they're not making a decision that we think somehow will harm the child or um, go against the child's best interests. So we let it go. Um, but presumably that, that is one reason we could limit a parental authority. More commonly, we do it um, because the parent's decision, and I'll, and I'll talk about this in more detail, would violate the harm principle. And, and so in some jurisdictions like the United States, for example, we would consider that to be medical neglect where a parent is neglecting important medical needs on behalf of a child. So the argument you would make in Dennis's case is that um, the state needs to interfere with Dennis's aunt because her decision will uh, ultimately result in his death, which uh, is preventable, uh, certainly in the short term, and um, will provide him with a 70% chance of survival in the long term. And, and that requires generally a showing of a, that the, the decision the parents are making places that child at a significant risk of serious harm in comparison to uh, the options, for example, that the medical team wants. And um, I did not invent the harm principle. I simply applied it to this medical context. The harm principle has its roots in John Stuart Mill's um, ideas uh, put forward in the, the little book um, on liberty where he made the argument, and this was a moral argument Mill was making, <clears throat> that the only purpose for which power of a government can rightfully be exercised over any member of that community against that person's will is to prevent harm to others. Uh, that person's own good, whether physical or moral, is not a sufficient reason for the government to interfere. And, and so what Mill was really saying was that individual freedom and the, and, and the ability to exercise that freedom is very important, at least within the context of liberal democracies. Um, but the limit of one's individual freedom is um, uh, where your action or your decision will place another at risk of significant harm. And um, I, I'm not familiar enough with what's going on in Australia, in, on, in Australia right now with regard to COVID, um, but in the United States, we are clearly having a battle um, over the meaning of John Stuart Mill with a significant percentage of our population refusing to wear masks and refusing to vaccinate themselves um, and um, also refusing to admit the fact that uh, in making that individual decision in exercising their freedom, they are also placing others at risk of harm. And, uh, and jurisdictions then have to decide whether they will mandate mask wearing or whether they will mandate vaccinations. And to do so, they have to demonstrate that the decision not to vaccinate or not wear a mask places others at significant risk of serious harm. So we, we see this take going um, taking place in the uh, public policy arena as well as potentially applying it in the individual arena. And so um, in that um, paper, um, Professor Massey referred to, um, I made the argument that um, state interference with a parental decision, so again, think about Dennis Lindbergh, uh, Dennis and his aunt's refusal of um, a blood transfusion, uh, and, and in this case, let's pretend Dennis is younger than his age of 14, and so his voice is not part of the equation. Um, we would, presumably, in order to interfere with his aunt's decision, we would need to get the state involved. Uh, 
because, you know, as a physician, for example, I can't do something to a patient without a young patient without the parent's permission. And if I can't get the parent's permission, my only real option is to um, involve our protective uh, our child protective services or get a judge to issue a court order overriding that parent's decision. And to do so, the argument I've made is that their action has to place the child at significant risk of harm that's serious and eminent. And you can certainly make that case in Dennis's situation. Um, there's a significant risk of harm, that's death. Um, it's very likely. Um, well, it's almost certain if you don't transfuse him and it's eminent, um, it will occur in the next couple of days. Uh, and, and the purpose of the eminence criterion, by the way, is, um, is, is really to remind people that if it's not imminent and, and people say, well, have you defined eminent? And I don't really care to define eminent because the purpose of that is if you have enough time to try to work with the family and, 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 and get them to a place where they can um, do something that prevents, that does not harm the child, then that's the avenue you should take rather than seeking state interference. So the point is that this should be a last resort. Um, the interference should be necessary to prevent the harm. In this case, a transfusion is the only way to prevent the harm. It should be likely to prevent the harm, and it will in this case, and it shouldn't be associated with a similar risk of similarly serious harms. So, you know, for at least from a medical perspective, a blood transfusion is relatively risk-free, and it's certainly far less risky than certain death. And so that's a relatively easy case to make. I will say that the one, um, the one difficult part that some people wrestle with with applying this is, um, well, how do you factor in spiritual or religious harms? Because what Dennis or his aunt would say is that in making Dennis unclean by providing him with a blood transfusion, you have... Uh, uh, created a situation which causes him more harm than death would. And, and all I can say is that, um, you know, a lot of this is rooted in the state's obligation to protect minors. And um, since it is unclear how uh, autonomously minors can choose religious beliefs, we have generally tended to um, not consider spiritual and religious harms when talking about minors, um, whereas we would take them seriously when talking about adults. Finally, there should be no less intrusive alternatives. And um, my test of generalizability is simply uh, a way of, of trying to uh, uh, at least address implicit bias to some degree. And so the question I ask is, you know, Dennis, has some pretty significant differences from me. He, he belongs to a different religious group and he may come from a different socioeconomic status and he may be a different color um, and, and um, culturally he may be different. And, and, and what I do with the test of generalizability is, is <clears throat> before finally making the decision that we need to involve the state in interfering with the parent's decision, I ask myself, would I make the same decision if Dennis was just like me? His family was just like mine. He lives in my neighborhood. He goes to the same school my kids do. We go to the same church he does. We, um, you know, his parents are professors and doctors. Uh, would I still make this decision? And, and, and if the answer is no, I wouldn't. Then um, 
we have a problem because that would suggest that I have allowed some kind of bias to intrude and there's something about him that is making me treat him differently than I might somebody who's more like me. Um, and, and so that's really the harm principle. So if we stopped there, uh, for example, as I mentioned, let's assume Dennis is seven, where he really doesn't have any reasonably you know, developed decision-making capacity to, uh, to really make a decision like this. Um, we, we would say that his guardian's decision to refuse blood violates the harm principle. And therefore, we would attempt to, to involve the state by getting a judge's court order. Um, and the judge would almost certainly override the parents and allow us to transfuse the child, at least in the United States and most jurisdictions, um, for, for the reasons I've mentioned, for the sort of it meets the criterion of the harm principle. And, and so, you know, that is sort of the context we start with. And as I mentioned, I'll get to adolescence later. Um, but I want to now step back and, and, and still address the younger child a little bit and talk about, so what's this notion of assent? How would that, would that not play a role at all? Um, and as you can see, I've suggested that maybe it doesn't in terms of making the decision, but, um, but let's talk about that. So in, in you know, following that, that sort of traditional analysis, the, the child is the center of moral concern. And, and whether you talk, and, and, and we do talk about the best interest principle and, the, um, and, and, and also the right to being protected from harms. And, and so when we invoke state action against a parent, it's because we're trying to protect the child. And, and the parent likewise is also usually trying to protect the interests of the child. Um, and, and those decisions and the analysis I just provided you with the child's agency is not really considered, at least if they're younger, and their preferences, even if we ask for them, uh, we don't generally consider to be particularly relevant to the final decision that we're going to make about whether he ultimately gets a blood transfusion or not. And, and I have mentioned that, you know, teens raise more concerns, and so Dennis might raise more concerns, and I'll talk about those later. So where does this idea of assent fit? in this concept, at least for younger children. And this is where I wanna talk a little bit about the history, which actually takes us back about 50 years. Um, and, and I apologize um, that I'm gonna give you a, a pretty US centric version of the history. I, I don't know enough about the history of these concepts in Australia or the European Union um, uh, to, to know for sure how they developed in those countries. But um, I'm, I'm fairly certain this notion of assent um, really was sort of um, had its origins in the United States. And the, the first real reference I can find in the research context came from a policy uh, that, that was adopted by the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center, where they suggested in their policies that although children might not have the capacity to consent on their own to participate in research activities, and again, they're talking about research activities here, they must be given the opportunity to refuse to participate. The traditional requirement of parental consent for medical procedures is intended to be protective rather than coercive. And, and so what, you know, what they were trying to say here was, at least with research, and, and the assumption is that research, um, not being in research is not a harm to the child because it's research, um, that you need parental per consent because parents need to protect their kids. So they need to be able to decide if their child shouldn't be in this research. But 
they also seem to be saying that a child, even if their parents are okay with it, should be able to say no. Um, and, and this is 50 years ago in the research context. Now, um, a few years later, um, the National Commission, which was a, an ethics body created in the United States specifically to look at research issues, which included the role of children in research, um, there was a pediatrician that was asked to speak to the National Commission, uh, whose name is Bill Bartholomew. And, and uh, Bill Bartholomew was really one of the first people to, um, to sort of address pediatric issues and ethics in the United States. And, and at the time, a, a fairly young pediatrician, he was not that far out of residency. Um, and he was talking specifically, again, about non, what they called non-therapeutic research. So research that did not offer um, a prospect of direct benefit to children. And his conception was that in this case, participation is a gift. It's not an obligation that the child has. And the parent's role is to encourage opportunities for moral growth in their children, but yet don't do that by forcing your kids to do things. So, you know, what Bill would say is, um, you know, if they're passing the collection plate in, in church and the, you see the parent give their kid a dollar and then point at the collection plate and tell them to put it in there, you're not actually teaching your child in that case to be, uh, to be giving and gracious. What you're teaching your child is that um, big people can make you do stuff. And, and, and that the only way to really encourage your child to be um, a generous person is to give them the dollar and make it clear that they can keep it if they want, but you know, wouldn't it be nice, Jimmy, if you use that dollar to help other kids and put it in the plate for that reason and, 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 and then hope your kid makes the right choice. Um, but the risk you take there is that <laughs> many children will not take the right choice. And, 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 and that's a cent. Um, so what Bill said was a cent should be mandatory and everybody over five and the parent should be a co-participant. And again, this is in the non-therapeutic research context. So what the National Commission did with that testimony was they found a, a philosophical basis for assent in the principle of respect for persons. And protection of and respect for the evolving autonomy of the child and protection of the child from harms that they can't protect themselves against. And, um, and, and so the role of parental permission in the research context was to protect the child from any harms of research. And the role of assent was to allow the child to decide whether they wanted to participate in this charitable action. Um, and assent seemed to require some kind of understanding of the procedures, the general purpose of the research, and an indication of one's willingness to participate. So that's really, I, what, from what I can find, the first real sort of discussion of assent. And, and it's not that it wasn't without controversy. We have Will Galen, who was one of the co-founders of the Hastings Center, for example, um, talking about an encounter he had with a father who had ordered his son to give blood for a research purpose after his son refused because it would hurt. And, and the father explained to Galen that he had, he as a dad had a moral obligation to teach his child that there are certain things one does, even if it causes a little bit of pain if it's gonna help other people. And this is what the father actually said. Um, this is my child. I was less concerned with the research involved than with the kind of boy that I was raising. 
I'll be damned if I was going to allow my child because of some idiotic concept of children's rights to assume that he was entitled to be a selfish, narcissistic little bastard. Um, that was the father. Um, now, there's a couple things I want to point out because I, you know, unfortunately, Bill Bartholomew is no longer with us. But my suspicion is the way Bill would respond to this is first to point out that um, the concept of assent has nothing to do with an idiotic concept of children's rights. It's not really about children's rights. It's about um, recognizing that this is a charitable act and that you shouldn't be making people do charitable acts. You should be encouraging them to do that. And that means you have to take a risk that they'll say no. And, and so respect for persons would suggest that you let kids make this choice. Um, and that does mean that sometimes they're gonna do things that make them seem a little bit like selfish, narcissistic little bastards, um, just like lots of adults do. Um, but that's, you know, that's sort of the, the parental role is to try to teach kids um, to be otherwise um, rather than try to force them to be otherwise. Um, and I suspect Bill would say you can't force kids to do that. Now, around the same time, there was a now long, for at least by many people, forgotten book that, that was edited by Will Galen and Ruth Macklin called Who Speaks for the Child, The Problems of Proxy Consent. And um, it's amazing to me how many people talk about and, um, and write about uh, uh, the child's voice and, and assent and, and seem to have forgotten that 50 years ago, um, there were, uh, you know, uh, a dozen authors who had written very, uh, 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 very uh, extraordinary scholarship um, about this topic, um, much of which has just been sort of rehashed and revisited um, in the years since. Um, but Ascent is mentioned by um, several authors in this, this book as, as, as sort of um, uh, something to consider in the clinical context. And 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 so it's it's even in the clinical context, it's 50 years old. Now, where most people sort of attribute this notion of assent in the clinical context, they do so by going to 1995 in the American Academy of Pediatrics Policy Statement on Informed Consent, Parental Permission, and Child Assent. Um, and that's part of the reason that I want you to know about this book, because it was really not this notion of assent in the clinical context was not invented by the AAP. Um, there had been people 30 years before who had been talking about it, um, or 25 years before. Um, now, interestingly, what a lot of people don't know um, about this 1995 statement is the primary author was Bill Bartholomew. Um, and, and he um, slaved and labored for, for years um, uh, to uh, get the academy to um, get, get this into, into a form that the academy would find acceptable. And, and the careful wording, I think, reflects the fact that, um, that there wasn't uniform agreement on exactly what assent should look like. Uh, because what the statement, probably the most uh, important statement in the document says, is there are clinical situations in which a persistent refusal of assent, i.e. dissent, may, and that's an important word, may be ethically binding. A patient's reluctance or refusal to assent should also carry considerable weight when the proposed intervention is not essential to his or her welfare and or can be deferred without substantial risk. So it, it's interesting to me that many people read the assent 
portion of the AAP's 1995 statement as if it's sort of a broad endorsement of assent. Uh, but a careful reading suggests otherwise, suggests that it's actually a very narrow reading of how to interpret child assent. And, and, and the, the kind of scientific basis for what the Academy was saying uh, really had, a root, had its roots in studies by Wheathorn and Campbell back in the early 80s, where they, they demonstrated that um, from a developmental perspective, uh, kids from about the age of 14 and above were capable of making adult-like decisions in a medical context. Um, with some important caveats. Uh, and, and that's actually where this sort of magical age of 14 came from, at least in, from an empirical sense. Um, now, I wanna make a couple of observations about this. The first is that the ethical basis for assent rests in the principle of respect for persons and the principle of beneficence. It's not in the principle of respect for autonomy. Uh, in other words, this is not about sort of making the claim that small children or even adolescents are fully autonomous individuals. Uh, it's really more about respect for persons, which doesn't require full autonomy or any autonomy really. Um, and it's about beneficence and what's good for children. Um, autonomy is not a requirement to be owed respect as a person. Children have preferences and should have a voice in matters that affect them. And they should have their preferences seriously considered, which does not necessarily mean that they're always followed, but they should be seriously considered and the children should at least be given a voice and be heard. Um, beneficence similarly would suggest that it's in the best interest of children to know what's going on, to know what's gonna happen to them and to have something to say about it. Um, and we always need to recognize that if we have to resort to force, that use of force is harmful. Even if justified, it's harmful and it needs to be factored into the equation. There are times in my practice in the emergency department, for example, where I think it would be nice to have a blood sample, where I think it would be nice to have a urine sample, but I have a hard time justifying the fact that to accomplish that, we will need to hold a child down uh, in what for that child will be a terrifying event. Uh, and, and so I sometimes choose not to do it uh, because the value of that is so unlikely to sort of ultimately change uh, my treatment plan. And, and I think that's the sort of ethical analysis we should be using uh, more often. Um, there is also an impact on trust and future relationships. Um, you know, again, we are teaching children something when we force them to undergo things they don't want to do. And, and so we need good justification for that uh, before we go ahead and do it. My second observation is that the purpose of assent is not to appraise the child of all the risks and benefits so that they can protect themselves. That's the job of the parents. And assent does not replace parental permission. So if we take the Dennis case and we pretend Dennis is seven, for example, or even at 14, it is the role of his aunt to make a risk-benefit analysis. And the purpose of assent in most of those cases is to make sure the child is, has had a chance to express their preferences and, and, um, uh, and, and have those taken seriously but it's not a protective role. Observation three, assent is, is, is related to this, which is that assent is not mini consent. Um, we see this in the research context in the United States all the way, all the time. People feel like assent needs to be handled by having an assent form that looks an awful lot like the consent form their parents are signing and that the process is essentially the same. And that's again, not the point. 
Um, assent should address issues of interest to the child. <clears throat> it should be age appropriate and should be clear about where the child has choices. Um, and, and so what are issues of interest to the child? Well, you know, in the research context, for example, I've often made the argument that seven-year-olds really don't care or understand what it means to bank their data. So I'm not convinced we should be asking them about that. But they do care if you plan to stick a sharp object into their arm. Um, and, and so that's something they want to know about and at least have something to say about, if, um, particularly if they have a choice. So what is the purpose of assent? It's, it, as I've mentioned, it's to demonstrate respect for persons and their preferences. It's to recognize that children are, are developing decision-making ability and allowing them to begin to sort of exercise that. It makes the child as a partner and enlists their cooperation in the things we do, at least some of the time. Um, and it provides the child with some control, at least if, if they are, um, if, if, if the, you know, it, it's a situation where they actually do have a choice. Um, and ideally it minimizes the harms of coercion and force, um, including the lessons we teach when we use coercion and force. Now, assent is applied differently in the non-therapeutic research environment where it's binding. Um, in the United States anyway, if assent is required, that child holds all the cards. Um, they can't decide to undergo research without their parents' permission, but they can make a decision that goes contrary to what their parents want in choosing not to participate, and that has to be respected. Um, in the therapeutic or clinical realm, <clears throat> assent is more, for lack of a better term, advisory. Um, it does not have to be binding. And, and again, if we go back to that wording, that 1995 wording from the AAP's initial document on informed consent, um, it's pretty clear that most of the time the AAP did not consider assent to be binding, but um, uh, rather something that um, uh, was important for showing respect, but not necessarily for making the final decision. So what does assent look like? Um, I think it, it, it should involve a developmentally appropriate discussion about the child's condition and treatment plan. It should describe to the child what they, what, what they can expect to happen to them, taking, ideally taking away some of the anxiety. <clears throat> um, I think we should solicit the child's thoughts and preferences about the plan. You know, what do you think about that? Um, and then address those, um, even if we can't necessarily uh, allow the child to make the decision. Um, and, and, and their views should be given some weight and considered. I mean, as I mentioned, there are times where it's very clear that to accomplish um, something is going to cause more trauma to the child than I think is justified by the therapeutic benefit. And, and so in that case, the child's preference will be honored. Um, and, and is that most of the time? Probably not. But I, I, I think there are many situations where that can be the case. Um, and the weight given to a child's views are going to depend on the magnitude and likelihood of benefit offered by the intervention you're proposing that they may not like, and the likelihood and magnitude of the harms that will accrue if their preference is followed or not followed, um, and, and so like many of the other decisions we make. Observation number five, we should be honest with children about when they have choices and when they don't. So. You know, it, the wrong thing to do is to make a child think they have a choice here. Um, well, what do you want to do? And, and and then they think that we've, we're going to give them the choice, and then you don't give them the choice. Um, that's actually disrespectful, and, um, and, and it undermines trust. So I, I do think 
you have to carefully solicit their preferences without giving them the impression that they have a choice in situations where they really don't. And a blood transfusion would be an example of that. Um, failing to respect dissent, physical dissent through the use of force is more harmful than failure to respect verbal dissent in an otherwise cooperative child. So my hope in a case like Dennis's is that we can approach Dennis, you know, presumably after we've gotten a court order and say, I'm really sorry we have to do this. I know this violates your beliefs. I know you don't want us to do this, but we're doing this because we want you to become an adult who can make these decisions for yourself. Um, and then hope he doesn't physically resist. I'm often asked, well, what if he does? What if he tries to rip out the IV or physically fights you and it's, it's gonna take four big people to hold him down? Um, I think that's harder. I, I, I think um, at a minimum, what you need to do there is um, recognize that this is gonna cause much more harm than if he wasn't physically re resisting and that has to be weighed against the benefit. And with a life-saving transfusion, it's probably still gonna be on the side of giving the transfusion. Um, but there may be other situations where it's not and, and, and where I would draw the line at, at, at actually holding somebody down to accomplish this. Um, it, it may also matter how many times this is gonna have to happen. If it's a one-time intervention versus, you know, we're gonna have to do this a hundred times during your treatment regimen, um, in which case um, you may think differently. So the last thing I wanna do is talk about the adolescent and, and how we've got Dennis who's 14, but how somebody his age or older, how we might think about that a little differently because up until now, we've really been thinking about this in terms of we've got a parent or a legal guardian who ultimately has decision-making authority. And then we have a child who, you know, the, at least in my version of assent, we would like to know what they think. We wanna know their preferences. We wanna weigh those if it's, if it's important to do so, uh, if it's a situation where it's, where it's appropriate. Um, but they're, they're not gonna have the final decision. And so the real question with these older adolescents is, um, you know, we've already decided in Dennis's case that we will attempt to override his aunt's decision. But does it matter that Dennis um, may, is maybe mature enough to make this decision for himself? Would that change the decision we make? And, and this is a recognition that, that the correlation between age and, and, and one's capacity to make decisions is, um, is a pretty rough one. Uh, as William Blake points out, um, there are lots of, you know, not just old men, but people who aren't minors, a few women in there who um, don't make very good decisions. And uh, well, and here's an example of me doing that. Um, none of those children around me are my own. They're all wise enough not to get on this ride a second time um, and <laughs> watching their father do it. Um, and, and so we know age is a rough starting point. And at least in the United States, we have, uh, it's really been interesting how we, we've sort of ad adopted an approach where, where people talk about the rule of sevens, which is really derived from a Tennessee court case in 1987, in, in which the court suggested that nobody under seven has any capacity to make decisions at all. I mean, other than, you know, like, what's my favorite food? Um, and, and so we shouldn't, we shouldn't ever consider somebody seven or under to have any capacity to make medical decisions. 
And they also said 14 and above, it's that we should assume they do. And it's rebuttable. So you got to, in that case, you got to prove that they don't have capacity. And, and this again comes from those studies that were done by Wheathorn and Campbell um, back around the same time. And, and then there's this middle territory, seven to 14, where we start with the presumption that they don't have capacity, but you know, maybe they can demonstrate that they do. So, you know, where would Dennis fit in this? Well, he's 14. And, and so probably a rebuttable presumption of capacity, but even if we put him in the rebuttable presumption of incapacity, uh, you know, based on the court documents, there, it, was, uh, it was fairly clear that everybody who had interacted with this young man uh, described him as mature beyond his years, at least on the clinical team. So uh, they felt like he was carefully considering this, that he understood the risks and the benefits, that he met all of the criterion that we would apply to an adult making a decision for him or herself. Um, and, and so using sort of this approach, we might be tempted to call him a mature minor. But here's the problem. <clears throat> and, you know, so when I was um, younger, actually, I guess before John was running around in shorts, um, <laughs> although I don't think you're that much younger than I am. But anyway, I was always a little, um, as a young ethicist, a, a little um, confused by the fact that we talked about this rule of sevens and we used 14 as an age when now we, we were supposed to assume adolescents were wise enough to make most medical decisions. And yet, you know, I had also done adolescent medicine and, and the way the adolescent docs talked about decision-making and adolescence was really different. How, you know, they kind of focused on the many bad kinds of decisions that adolescents made, that they were risk takers and, and, and the two didn't really fit. Um, and, and what I was, I think, what I now understand I was sort of struggling with was this, what we know about adolescents, which is that they often don't perform at a level commensurate with their actual cognitive abilities. And so, and this is important because um, when Lois Wheathorn and Campbell did their studies, they basically did paper and pen tests with adolescents in a classroom setting. So there's no stress, there's no sort of cl real clinical emergency going on, there's no peer pressure, uh, none of the things that affect adolescents. And, what, and, and, and their finding was that at least in that context, they make adult-like decisions. But the problem is in real life, they're not in that context. Uh, in real life, they're not doing paper and pen tests where they can think about it and sit at a desk and it's not really about them they're imagining it might be, it's a very different process. And, and, and we know that middle adolescents and older adolescents use analytic processing more than younger adolescents and that they're more likely to make adult level decisions, at least in some cases. So we know there's something that's going on between 14 and 21 um, that is um, uh, not always consistent. And here's why, at least I think. Um, all of our brains really operate, and this is, you know, I'm sure overly simplistic for anybody who has a degree in neurobiology, but this is my layperson's attempt to explain the way our brains work, um, which is, uh, is that we really have a dual processing system. Uh, and, and, and our decisions are made utilizing what we call a social-emotional brain and, um, and, you know, for lack of a better term, a... Um, uh, a cognitive rational brain. Um, and, 
what the social emotional brain does is it picks up on patterns before we're consciously aware of them and motivates our behavior change. And this is really important through feelings and autonomic responses. And, and so when we have first impressions, like hmm, I really like that person, um, that's our social emotional brain talking. We haven't had time to think about why we like that person, but we just know we do. Um, and, and so this part of our brain tends to be based on those first, you know, what Malcolm Gladwell calls thin slice pieces of information. It's reactive. And this is important and explains a lot of adolescent behavior. It's very sensation seeking. It wants to feel good. Now, the other part of our brain is this rational brain, which, you know, we sort of correlate roughly with the prefrontal cortex. And this is the part that most of us think about when we think about our thinking which is it's high level reasoning. It's where we think we make our decisions, even though the reality is that that social emotional brain is responsible for many, if not most of the decisions we make in life. Um, impulse control is part of the rational brain and, it, and the impulses it's controlling are often what the social emotional part of the brain wants to do. Um, it assesses consequences, it plans, strategizes, organizes, inhibits inappropriate behavior, adjusts behavior to situations, sets priorities, estimates and understands probabilities. That's the prefrontal cortex. That's the part we're aware of. The other really important piece about this social emotional brain is um, it works in the background. So it motivates what we do based on the way we feel. Now think about advertising. There are effective ads. They often feature soft fuzzy puppies or generate warm and cozy feelings. Good advertising tries to get this part of your brain engaged and tends not to speak to your rational cortex because advertisers know, marketers know that if they can, if their product generates a warm, fuzzy feeling in you, you're, you're more likely to buy it than, than if you have to go through some rational process about, do I really need this? Um, uh, and, and good marketers know this and, and good stores are designed this way. I, I don't, I, don't um, I, I assume there's an Apple store somewhere in, in Melbourne, but um, you know, the Apple stores in the United States, not like fruit apples, but the computers, um, they are designed very much to speak to your social emotional brain. Because you walk into a store and you're confronted with these beautiful objects and they're all there just, um, looking beautiful and they've got soft edges and they're, they're pleading with you to pick them up and play with them. And you fall in love with them quite literally very quickly in the store. And, but here's the thing nobody ever notices unless you're like me. Um, and that is that in contrast to most computer places, um, you can't, they don't have a card next to the computer that gives you any of the technical specs you know, uh, how many gigabytes does this have? Well, how fast is the processor? Um, and that's intentional because they know that would engage your rational brain and they'd rather have you just fall in love with the computer and then walk out $2,000 poorer. Um, and, and if you engage your rational brain to think about the tech specs, then your rational brain might start thinking about whether you really need this computer, whether, you know, it's worth the price and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and so to find the specs, if you're really determined, the only way to do it is to play with the computer. You have to find them online. And that also is intentional because in the process, you're 
playing with an interface that is is designed to sort of almost be addictive to to pull you in. Um, and 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 this is the way we all make decisions. It's many of our decisions are not purely rational. They're they're based on the intersection, the balance between these two systems. And here's what we know about the maturation of those two systems. Our brains mature from what they call front back to front. In other words, the social emotional part of the brain is actually pretty ready to go and mature by about 14 and maybe earlier. Um, but the prefrontal cortex, that's the front part, doesn't mature until the mid to late 20s. So actually long after we consider people to no longer be minors. It matures a couple years earlier in females than males. And so basically what you have in an adolescent is an imbalanced system. You've got a very strong, powerful, social-emotional brain, which again, remember, is the sensation-seeking part. It's the people-pleasing part. It's the peer pressure part. And a less active, less powerful prefrontal cortex, which is the rational part that will think through things. So that imbalance, what that really means is, so, so that prefrontal cortex, it's well enough developed that under the right circumstances, an adolescent can make some pretty rational and smart choices. Um, but not in emotionally charged situations, not when they're under pressure, not when there's peer pressure involved. And adolescents are very sensitive to environmental cues, affective elements, rewards, punishments, the presence of peers. And they're more likely to weigh current rewards because that's what the socio-emotional brain wants than they are to consider future consequences. So as a result, they're more likely to act impulsively without a full consideration of consequences. So, I mean, one, one way, so, so this is the way Lawrence Steinberg puts it. You know, the adolescent brain is a well-developed accelerator. <laughs> that's the socio-emotional brain, but only a partly developed brain. Um, and that's the rational brain. And, and so if you have adolescents at home, um, um, or maybe, I mean, you, you won't probably all have been adolescents. So, uh, you know, think about the kid who um, gets pulled over by the police because he's doing 75 in a 30 mile per hour zone or whatever. Um, and, and he comes home, you know, hang dog expression, his parents say, and, and I, I usually ask people this and they always say the same thing, you know, so what do the parents say? And, and, and the parent, you know, the answer always is, what were you thinking? That's what they say to the adolescent. And, and then I ask them, so, well, what does the adolescent say back? I don't know. And a lot of parents think their kid is being cheeky. You know, he's, he's being sassy. She's not, you know, being honest. But the truth is they are. They actually weren't thinking they don't know what they were thinking because that 75, the odds are there were friends in the car when they drove 75. And why did they drive 75? Because it felt good, because it impressed their friends. That's all social emotional brain. If you had asked them before they left the house, would you drive 75 in a 30? Their answer would have been, of course not. It's dangerous, I might get a ticket. All, so the rational brain is totally engaged there. But now you're, you're out in the car, your friends are there, you're trying to impress them, and that break no longer works. And, and you, 
Do you see that behavior in adults? Sometimes, not as frequently as in adolescents. Adults are much more likely to engage that prefrontal cortex quickly and say, well, it would feel good to go fast, but what are the consequences? So, you know, the implications are that adolescents kind of have a form of prefrontal cortex deficit disorder, um, which explains why sometimes they can be impulsive, inflexible, aggressive, reckless, emotionally volatile, take risks, they react to stress differently than many adults, they're vulnerable to peer pressure, and they participate sometimes at higher percentages than adults do in um, high-risk activities like drug use and um, jumping off uh, big rocks into alpine lakes and, and other things. Um, and they tend to underestimate the long-term potential consequences of those things. So um, it's important to recognize that. And, and I think that means we have to be really careful about allowing even 17-year-olds to make life-changing decisions uh, in the medical arena. Um, should they be given more choices than 13-year-olds? Yes. But I don't think a 17-year-old should be allowed to refuse a blood transfusion that will end their life. They should be involved in those discussions and decisions. We should recognize the developing capacity they have, but we should recognize that even at 17, and quite frankly, 18, 19, and 20, but we can't do anything about that if the law says they're adults, their decision-making will differ from mature decision-making in some situations. And those situations include situations where there's peer pressure, emotion, and reward, and situations where there are rewards at stake, like they'll feel good. So think about Dennis. He's just been diagnosed with, with cancer. That's pretty emotional. More importantly, he belongs to a church that applies intense peer pressure on its, their parishioners. He's getting pressure from his aunt. And I know she's like a parent. Parents are peers. Um, he is getting pressure from his churchmates to be faithful. That is difficult for an adult to resist. It's almost impossible for an adolescent to resist that kind of peer pressure. And here's what I learned later from somebody who knew. Um, I talked to a journalist who'd gotten to know Dennis, and she explained to me that in addition, his classmates at school, who were not Jehovah's Witnesses, were nonetheless sort of praising him for standing up for his principles. Um, one more form of peer pressure. I mean, what, you know, it makes him feel great to be, you know, my classmates now are recognizing me for standing up for my principles. That's awesome. Um, and I'm going to keep doing that because that's what the social emotional brain is going to do. Um, and, and so, you know, adolescents need some limits and they need some direction. And, and again, I think the use of force requires significant justification. And a really important piece here is that when we do things to adolescents, the older ones in particular, but even the young ones, um, I think we owe them an apology if they don't want it done. So, you know, again, I, as I said earlier, I, my approach with Dennis would have been to say, I'm, I'm really sorry we have to do this um, because it's disrespectful. And, and I need to let him know that I feel badly about that. And, and, um, and so I think apologies are important in these situations. And quite honestly, I apologize to five-year-olds all the time. 
You know, when I'm in there doing a procedure in my emergency room practice, <laughs> the words, I'm sorry, come out a lot. And, you know, it's not because I don't think this needs to be done. It's because I know you don't want this done. And, and I really wish I didn't have to do it. Um, and I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry it's making you feel bad. I'm sorry we're doing something you don't want me to do. Um, and, and so I think that those words are important. Um, and I'm going to leave you with sort of my rule with adolescence, which, you know, you can spend the next two days talking about and arguing about. Um, but that is, uh, my feeling is, if the decision is one that we would not allow a parent to make on the adolescent's behalf, because it places the adolescent at significant risk of serious harm as compared to the rejected alternatives, we should be very reluctant to allow the adolescent to make that decision. Um, and, and there are situations where we would allow a parent to make a choice that we disagree with. Um, and in those cases, I think it's okay that we follow the adolescent's lead. Uh, now it gets more complicated when the adolescent disagrees with the uh, parental decision maker. And we'll talk about that sort of over the next two days, I'm sure. Um, but, but if we would go to court to, to challenge the parent's decision, um, I don't think we should let should change that just because the patient happens to be 16 or 17 uh, years old. So I'm gonna stop there. I, I think we've got a few minutes yet to let people talk about this. So thanks very much, Doug. That's absolutely fantastic. I just wanted to tackle you about ASCENT because it's interesting that 1995 document from the American Academy of Pediatrics and ASCENT, and I do recognise the, the careful language. But when you read on, one the, of the, the takeaways from for me was, well, you know, if, if, if you can't give them any sort of, you're not going to respect their dissent, they're not going to ASCENT then don't ask them. And, and I don't necessarily know that that was the intent or certainly not perhaps as you've presented it, but it, it came out fairly clearly and to me and sort of started me on this journey about you know, one of the aspects of what deciding with children uh, looks like. Do you have any comments? Have I misread that? Or, or do you think that's sort of where they get to? Well, I, it's not that you don't ask them. I, I, I think you, um, you want to, you ask them for the, you know, you want to get at their preferences. Um, but I think you have to carefully ask it in a way that doesn't lead them to believe that what they tell you will be followed. Hmm. And, and, and so it's more about being really careful with the language we use and the way we phrase that. Um, I feel very strongly that you know, particularly for the, the teenage kids, we should be asking them how you feel about that. Um, and, and, you know, there, so there's some wording, right? Tell me how you feel about that. Um, well, that doesn't really invite them to think they have a choice, uh, you know, that they are the final decision maker, but it does tell them that we want to know how they feel about that. And, and so it's their opportunity to express their preferences. And then we can talk about, you know, um, how they're feeling, what their preferences are, and and um, sort of engage them on that basis. Uh, but but the, I, I worry that you know the we we slip into just saying, um, well, what do you want to do? Um, because that sounds like well, I get to choose, and um, that can really harm the relationship. I think if if they're led to believe that 
you know, you seem to give them the choice and now you're taking it away. Thanks, Doug, because I think, you know, this is actually very nuanced. And I think, you know, some people, you know, I've heard when you sort of first pass it, deciding with children is people think, well, we want to cede decisional authority to children. And that's not the aim. And the aim is just as you've described to elevate the voice to try and then incorporate that into the decision at hand, if possible. And I think though some training and thinking and language that, you know, we've developed in other spheres, like we have for end of life care that I found very helpful and might be something that we need to do as yep. part of training for, for young pediatricians. Doug, I've got another question. I might see what Lynn, sort of Lynn's comment on that. You talked at the beginning about uh, limitations of parental authority and you used uh, two criteria and one uh, was incompetence of the parents and then the other was whether the decision was was harmful. Lynn, I think that we might also start factoring in emerging autonomy and decision-making capacity of the child into that in terms of limiting just what the parent can do? Yes. So I guess one potential way of thinking about it is to say, is to have a visual of as the adolescent's capacity to engage their rational decision-making brain and make decisions for themselves increases, then the, uh, the authority of the, the parent decreases. So that kind of seems to make sense as an idea. And I guess the thing that I find difficult about it is just thinking about how that actually works in practice. So if you have parents and adolescent and they've each got sort of partial authority, what does that actually mean? And it brings me back to wonder what authority is. Is authority the, the power of veto or is authority the, the overriding uh, power to make something happen so i'd be interested to hear what you think about that doug yeah i well i mean i guess i interpret authority to to mean it's your decision <laughs> um at least that's the way i tend to use it if if you have decision making authority it's it's your at least re, in a rebuttable way it's your decision so you know in with with u.s law for example when the law says the legal decision maker is the parents they are um, and and the, the rebuttable part of it is you have to demonstrate that they are making a decision that's contrary to the interests of their child um, or what I've described as, as um, you know, meeting a certain threshold of harm. Um, and, and so I don't see most children or even adolescents as having decision-making authority. Yeah. Um, I see their so parents as having it. Sorry to interrupt you. So on that basis, uh, you can't have two parties having authority. Either the parent has authority or the child does. It can't be both of them. Um, well, so, so um, that gets us into another mess, right? Because most kids have two parents and each yes. of those parents theoretically has authority. And, and I will say those are some of the biggest messes we have in pediatrics, right? When one parent, and, and we're seeing it with COVID right now because um, one of the questions I'll get from pediatricians is, well, I just had this family in my office and dad wants the vaccine and mom doesn't. And, and so you have the two people. And the irony is if, if dad had just brought the kid in and hadn't said anything about mom's preference, you would have given the vaccine. But mm. now that he's told you that the parents disagree about it, it makes it a much, um, it, it makes it much harder because 
um, the at least legally that it, it doesn't say which parent rules there. And, and so we tend to default with not doing something when we have parents in disagreement. And, and if we feel it needs to be done, then we'll go to court to adjudicate that difference of opinion between the two people with authority to make the choice. Yeah, um, uh, yeah fascinating issue. And we might see some more comments on that coming through, that problem of um, do you need both parents to agree? Are they agreeing because it's authority or it's simply they're supporting the, um, they're making us feel comfortable about taking the adolescent's um, decision on their own. And Lynn, got... we're going to have some more comment about yep. this with Doug and with uh, Lainey Friedman-Ross on Friday morning, uh, where we're going to talk about not exactly that scenario, but uh, about you know the role of the parents in decision making. Yep. So we've been thinking, you know, there's really this is a, a part of trois, isn't it? it? It's a version of shared decision making with the physician the parents and that's what we're you know comfortable and used to and standard procedure if you like and now trying to draw in the child at the right time in the right way is is what we yeah we're i want to think more about the authority thing and i've just noticed in chat there's a couple of comments about um daryl efron saying we face this problem of parents disagreeing with stimulant medication for um adhd doug you're nodding to that one yeah. there's also heaps of other stuff chat's fascinating at the moment Please look if you haven't been. George, do you want to pick out a couple of uh, uh, yeah, there's a couple of um, to go to? a couple of threads that I've been following that are running through here. Uh, so I guess, Doug, in your example with Dennis, it we uh, or if we think about say a 17-year-old, um, you were saying shouldn't be able to refuse a life-saving blood transfusion. But what about uh less imminent uh threats or decisions and then so carolyn johnston hello carolyn from over at monash um she said what about if a kid's refusing nasogastric feeding because of you know social media pressure or whatever and then tim marshall has also come in about weighing in in the gender dysphoria area saying how should we then treat or deal with immature decision making when we're deciding whether to permit um puberty blockers um so it's all this sort of nuance around not so extreme or imminent harms or threats um so not necessarily the age thing but the decision and where there is perhaps a little more choice uh, but again how much decision making authority or involvement do you permit the child in these lesser cases yeah. um so those are so that's a hard the 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 gender dysphoria issue is a hard one for me because um, you can also, you can make a very good argument that <clears throat> by um, not allowing them to uh, undergo puberty suppression, you're doing at least some of these kids really great harm. Yeah. And, um, and, and, but it's, it's sort of the, the flip side, right? It's not that the parents are refusing what you're recommending necessarily, but um or well, actually, I mean, it, it's it's in this case the child really, you know, may know better than the parents what's best for him or her. Um, I, you know, what I would do then, I, I I think there are some exceptions you can you can draw here, and and one of the things, you know, first of all, I guess the considerations that would be important to me are that um, what pubertal suppression does is it's first of all it's not irreversible it's just delaying um and and it's delaying ideally till a point where the child 
can make this decision as an adult, um, as an 18 year old in most jurisdictions. Um, or, and, and I recognize that in some places it might be 16 in, in uh, Canada or the European Union. Um, and, and there is a move in the United States actually, at least by some people to try to carve out um, uh, puberty suppression treatment um, uh, for these kids as, as an area where maybe they can make this decision. And, and part of it is that it, it's not really irreversible. They'll go through puberty later. Um, and, but it also preserves their opportunity, right, in the future. So by letting them go through puberty, you, you really begin to limit the opportunities they'll have to make choices as an adult. And by suppressing their puberty, you maintain um, uh, more opportunity for them to make decisions for themselves. And so in some ways, it's, uh, it's supportive of future autonomy, I guess you could say. And, and I think that makes it very different than most other medical decisions that we're facing. Um, the other, but you know, the other area that I'm thinking of is vaccination, right? And this has also come up in the United States surrounding the COVID vaccine, because one of the problems we're having right now is it's, we're, we're allowed to give it to kids down to 12. And there are a lot of these kids that really want that vaccine, but they have parents who won't authorize it. And there is a move in this case to, um, at least in some places, see if we can't carve out and grant adolescents that authority in the same way we do to get sexually transmitted diseases um, treated, where they don't need parental permission. And and you know those are those are generally public health carve outs. They're they're areas where it's clear this is in the child's interest. There's very little downside. Um, and yet sometimes parents can interfere with uh, the child's healthcare needs. Um, and so in those cases, we, we do let adolescents make decisions for themselves. And STD treatment is one of them. Pregnancy-related care is one of them. Getting birth control is one of them. And um, I personally think that the COVID vaccine ought to be one of them. Um, but I recognize not everybody agrees with me about that. Thanks, Doug. Now, there's lots of other topics going on in chat. Um, George, I think there's one about, there's a discussion going on about saying sorry. Well, there's a lot about both positive yeah. and negative comments about. There's a lot about that. Saying uh, sorry. So we might be interested yeah. to hear a bit more from you, Doug, about that. So the, um, there have been a number of, of positive responses to that idea and people saying they apologise to children quite a lot. Others concerned. Yeah, and, baby, and babies. I saw that one. Um, I, yeah. I haven't seen the ones who are disagreeing. What can you and, and yeah. say, give me a synopsis so, of those? I, sure. I'm not so surprised. The is, the, the, so the concern is, I think, two concerns. One is that it might be sending a message that by apologising, you're saying that you're doing something wrong, and in fact, you're not doing something wrong. So saying sorry is sending an incorrect message. Um, and the other is about the effect that it has on the person who's saying sorry. And I guess that's a similar concern that. Um, if you say sorry, then not only does it send the wrong message to the child, but you're also telling yourself, here I am in the process of doing something wrong that I need to apologize for. Um, so I, I understand that view and, I, and I've certainly heard it before because um, almost every time I suggest this, there's somebody who doesn't like it. Um, but I'll start by saying, I just disagree with that. I, um, there is a difference between saying I'm sorry and, and, and saying I did something wrong. Um, 
I, and, and I think we've learned that from at least, you know, in the United States where we've gone through this agonizing process about how to deal with medical errors. And um, there are things that sometimes happen that really weren't anybody's fault, mm. but it's still appropriate to apologize to the patient. I'm really sorry this happened to you. I'm really sorry that, you know, my decision to prescribe this medication resulted in harm to you. Even though it's not my fault, it was the right decision to make. And, and I think there is a growing movement in that arena to use those words. And, and I think it's the same thing here. You're not, you're not saying I'm doing something wrong necessarily. I, 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 but I, you know, I, I also understand that for some people, they're, they feel the same, but they're not the same. Saying I'm sorry is different than saying I'm wrong. Um, and, and I don't think, so what I would say is, <laughs> to me, this is part of being human, right? I mean, uh, many of us are ethicists and, and, you know, one of the sort of core concepts to me of, of working in ethics is the recognition that the hard questions, the hard issues are hard because there's no great answer. They're tragic. They're tragic in the sense that there's either, there's either all the choices are bad um, and I have to pick the least bad one or all the choices are good. And by choosing one good, I have to choose against the other. So, you know, liver transplants. Um, I got one liver and I got two patients. That's a tragic choice. One patient's gonna get the liver and I'm gonna to apologize to the other patient that they didn't get the liver, even though we didn't do anything wrong. I'm still really sorry you didn't get that liver. And, and almost all of the hard questions we face in ethics have this ambiguity and plus minus. And, and I don't think it's a bad thing for those of us who are clinicians to recognize that there are things we do that hurt patients, um, but they're justifiable because they lead to they're more, they're, they're likely to lead to more good than the harm I'm doing. I mean, every time I stick a needle in a kid's arm, I'm hurting them. And every time I catheterize somebody for urine and every time I do a spinal tap um, and I do everything I can to minimize those harms. But I think it's wrong of me to pretend like there isn't a harm there because there is. And, 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 and by reminding myself that there is a harm there and maybe one that justifies an apology, I'm reminding myself on a daily basis in the clinic that I need to think about whether this is justified because I am committing a harm. And so I need to make sure that that harm is justified by the benefits that will accrue to the patient in doing it. Um, every time I do a spinal tap, I have to ask that question, right? This is gonna hurt, small risk. <laughs> Chad is exploding, uh, mostly with uh, people agreeing with you at this point. Can I just ask though, for a clarification on, on that explanation of why say sorry when um, the, the, the uh, problem with it indicating that it could be a harm? So I, I understand and actually agree with your explanation, but would a child understand that, that behind that sorry um, is that explanation that, that or might they interpret it as um, you've done something wrong to me um, 
So I'm, I was just trying to think of how this explanation works with children. Does 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 it saying sorry to a child cause a different sort of harm because they don't understand? Interesting. I think it's a great question, and and you know the the question I think reminds us that we have to we have to think about the words we're using and how we're using them and when we're using them. Um, it's more common for me, you know, say I'm sewing up a child's face in the ER and the young kids never like that. And it's not always sufficient to give them Versed because they still scream and get upset because you're working right in front of their eyes and it's scary. And, um, you know, I'll say things during the procedure, like, I'm sorry, this is so scary. Um, and, and, but we'll also, you know, we'll be trying to talk them through it. We'll be trying to distract them. But if they're really, really upset, I may say something like that. Um, I don't say, I'm sorry, we're doing this. Um, <laughs> and, and after the fact, you know, once the medicines wear off, the sedatives wear off or whatever, you know, I'll go back into the room and the kid is a little calmer and, and I'll say, I'm sorry, that was so hard for you. Um, and, or I'm sorry, that was scary. And um, so I think wording can maybe alleviate some of the concerns people have. I think, Doug, though, I mean, this is a sort of general paediatric thing, isn't it? You know, things hurt. But I guess when it's decision-making, um, then there's a sort of sense of moral injury when, when we yeah. go against uh, the child's preferences or values. And I, and I think, you know, the first thing to think is if we don't ask, we don't know that we're trashing their preferences or values. So I think that that's one of the importance at least of inquiring in the right way that doesn't cede decisional authority if it's not there to be ceded um, to them. And then, you know, there's always moral injury um, uh, with overriding that preference. And, um, and, and then obviously if that steps up to physical uh, restraint or chemical restraint. And then, so, uh, you know, the apology, it's, it's perhaps I'm thinking a limitation of English language. We don't have enough words uh, perhaps for it to get the nuance. We're using the same word in lots of different contexts and easy to get misunderstood. And, and, and John Ross has um, made what I find a really interesting comment and, and somebody, um, Avi Bard has followed that up by um, pointing out that there, there may actually be differences in the way the word sorry is used in an Australian context than in a US context, which um, is an important consideration. Yeah. I mean, I'm inclined to agree with Danny's earlier comment that sorry is just the first word. There's the rest of the sentence to come. Yeah. And if you yes. explicitly fill out the rest of the sentence in the way you were talking about, you can get that nuance, mm -hmm. even if English, even if, yeah, even if people have different starting assumptions of what sorry means, if you fill the sentence out um, explicitly. And, you know, and then we're right. not always going to get it. Perfect. Right, and, and I think that's part of the ethics is is at least in, in engaging with it and thinking about it and and trying to get it right. And then what we're doing, I think, as you you know beautifully explained in your talk, Doug, is we're respecting the child as a person, even if they don't have you know decision making capacity or full autonomy as it might be recognised uh, by the law or by Kant. Uh, and, and I think that's something that paediatricians intrinsically intuitively do well i think it's something that part of the conference i think for us to do better my own special work uh at that 
Um, but I think that's part, again, of what you said about child, uh, the centre of uh, moral concern. Doug, could I ask you, though, about the obligation? You said parents encourage moral moral growth, and, you know, that might tie into some of the threads that are coming through here. So Kate Milner, one of our developmental paediatricians, and some of the others are interested in, you know, the wider scope and, you know, how far does our, our ethics and our concern for children go? So we've got COVID lockdowns, we've mentioned uh, vaccines, we've got kids kept out of school, there's uh, climate change going on around all of this and how we perhaps, you know, might involve uh, children in that. And I guess it's a sort of sense of our moral obligation, you know, in the healthcare space to be teaching the children or the parents and then, you know, maybe how wide we go. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't have easy answers to, I, I do think one of the important obligations parents have in parenting their children is to make good people and good citizens. And, um, and there are different ways of doing that. But quite honestly, I think the one that has the most profound impact is they watch us, they watch us closely. And, and if we model virtuous behavior, they are much more likely, I think, than using any other strategy to follow that someday. It may not be at seven and it may definitely not be at 13, or at least they're gonna hide it from you. <laughs> but that modeling, um, has a profound impact on kids. So, and I think we need to recognize that, that they're watching us really carefully. And, and if we're telling them to be honest and they see us being dishonest, ain't gonna fly, it's hypocrisy. And they pick up on hypocrisy just like that. Um, so, you know, to go back to the examples I gave, you know, the, 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 the collection plate example, for example, um, you know, what has a much more profound impact on the kids learning good moral behavior is going to be watching you do it. And uh, then, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Heidi in chat has said exactly that. Maybe we should put the coin in the plate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, and, 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 you know, and then maybe they don't put their coin in the basket, but they might later on say, dad, why'd you do that? And, and, and that's a teaching opportunity. And, and I think a really good one. And, but there are also going to be times where, you know, you kind of wish they would do things and they don't. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we just have to understand that as parents and, and because it's not going to happen every time, but, you know, we model it and we take those, um, you don't want to preach to kids, you don't want to lecture them, but those, those little moments where, you know, you're driving in the car and, and they're not, you're not making eye contact. That's always when I had the richest conversations with my kids when I'm driving them back from soccer practice and we're not making eye contact. And, and um, that's when they ask the questions and those are golden opportunities. Um, so I, I think that's what I would say. John, do you mind if I change tack a bit? Because I'm thinking back to, George, you're going to need to help me. Mm -hmm. Roz's comment right back earlier about the difference between the child physically resisting. Yeah, I picked up on that as well, Roz. Thank you for a really great question. Um, Roz McDougall has asked, Doug, whether she's a bit troubled by this, um, almost seems like a divide between trying to delay or um, put off physical you know physically restraining children and that we should definitely respect and step back and consider when a child is physically resisting treatment and Ros says isn't it enough if a child is verbally 
refusing or struggling or protesting and and maybe that's a bit more gendered maybe boys may become more physical mm. do we listen to those refusals and action that a lot more with physical refusal and less so with verbal and is that fair is it equitable um where do yeah. you see that well it's a great it's a great question and and uh, and i'm sure Roz has some ideas about how to answer it um i the way so i think they both need to be taken seriously it's it's not that one necessarily um uh should be taken more seriously and considered more carefully but i for me the difference is in the harm that's done i there is i think there when you lay hands on somebody you have moved and people some people hate it when i when i say this but you've you've moved in the direction of a physical assault and 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 it's you know it's not really a physical assault in a legal sense but that's the way the child perceives it mm-hmm. and it's much scarier i mean if you think about a child it's much scarier for them to have a bunch of people have to come in the room and hold them down to do something than they're expressing i don't want this done but then allowing you to take their arm and draw the blood without um without resisting it when you do that. I think the level of harm is different. And that's that's why I think um, it may require a greater level of justification in that sort of risk benefit measure. Um, it just, you know, and, and maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm Not everybody will agree with me, but I just, you know, when I try to put myself in that child's perspective, I'm gonna feel disrespected if they do it when I've said I don't want you to do it, but mm-hmm. I'm gonna feel assaulted when I physically resist, I've pulled my arm away, I try to get out of the room and suddenly, you know, um, there are a bunch of big people there um, putting me back on the bed and holding me down and making me do it. It just really feels different to me. John, I wonder if we can hear what Roz thinks. Well, perhaps Gus is able to let Roz, uh, Roz into the conversation. Is that possible, Gus? Gus being our uh, behind the scenes technician. Um, there she is. Is that ah, going to work? So yep. just to yes. introduce, yeah. Roz, Roz worked with us for a number of years yes. uh, as a postdoc yeah. uh, student and then has uh, been a bioethicist at the University of Melbourne. And we're very, very lucky in the last month or so that Roz has joined us again as one of our clinical ethicists here at the Children's Bioethics Centre. So welcome back, Roz. And, Thank um, you very much. <laughs> and hammer away at Doug, please. Oh. <laughs> Thanks so much for your talk, Doug. Really great talk and so much. You can tell from the chat, it's really been enormously stimulating for everyone. I'm trying to keep my professional excitement under control in having heard you speak. Um, But yeah, I suppose my worry with the verbal and physical aspect was the, um, is, is there really an ethical difference? And it sounds to me like, yeah, I'm convinced by your argument that the, the harms uh, potentially different, but I think it might be easy to underestimate the harms of going against a verbally expressed preference of a child. Um, so I, I don't have a neat answer. I don't have a strong existing view. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want to undersell the moral importance of a verbal dissent. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's a really important comment because I, I think I agree with you. I, I think we do have a tendency to to undervalue that. So it's a nice reminder. Ben H says that if we look at other forms of assault, acquiescing is not necessarily consent. 
Um, and Sarah Martin also said that victims of sexual assault and various other forms of violence may fear physical force um, or expressing their force physically um, because of, you know, past memories of reprisal and um, and whatnot. Mm. So it's a really good point, Ross. I think, mm-hmm. uh, some, you know, practically I will probably speak to that in the, the, you know, where the parents stand, you know, are they sort of in, in solidarity with the kid in a supportive way, um, helping mm. them through something or, uh, you know, in solidarity with the doctor doing something that's uh, difficult or painful or contrary to their preferences. Uh, and I, that sort of gets to a sense, you know, I, I think uh, I see a lot of parents who need some coaching in terms of uh, how to relate to their kids in the healthcare sector, you know, in the healthcare uh, environment. Okay. Oops, I just touched my mask. Um, John, I'm mindful of the time. Yes. However, there's a really interesting comment from our retiring colleague, Henry Tillum. I don't know if you saw it there. So this total change of tack. Um, Henry's talking about a, a seven-year-old deciding that they wanted their ears, one of which I have, um, corrected. So a seven-year-old's not competent to make their own decision. We'll check in with Doug. But they are very able to have a view about their ears and what they would like done with them. I'd just be interested to hear Doug's view on how to understand that and whether it is okay to be led by the by the the views of a seven-year-old for a surgical procedure? I think it's appropriate to be led by that. They don't get the final choice. Um, I I think, so first of all, from a legal perspective, the surgeon would be crazy to do surgery without parental permission. I mean, it's just inviting a lawsuit and they would lose. Um, So, you know, the legal background is there, but I think what it's important to hear what that seven-year-old is telling you, which is that (laughs) having these ears is doing me a lot of harm. Uh, He's probably, or she is probably getting made fun of at school. Um, Who knows? And, and, you know, this, this, it's not just, you know, for me, it was my nose and (laughs) my name and, you know, my nickname in high school was Birdbeak. And that was not a kind, you know, it was not meant kindly. Um, and, and so I think there are different ways of approaching this. I mean, you know, some parents would probably say, yes, you know, we really want to, he or she really wants to change this part of their body. And, and we support that. And, and, and then I don't think you have a major problem uh, most of the time. But, but I, also, I also think, you know, a lot of parents would approach that by saying, by, by trying to, um, not change the child's body, but change the way they're maybe understanding the way other people are treating them, which was, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, they're basically being bullied. And um, uh, I think in the end, you probably have a healthier child if you have done the hard work of teaching them how to cope with bullies in life than changing because bullies were making fun of you. Mm. Um, which in the end probably isn't going to solve the problem. They'll find something else to make fun of. Um, Now, there are clearly going to be some physical characteristics that um, so impact a child's self-esteem that, you know, parents maybe should consider 
some kind of modifying surgery, but. Um, so Doug, I as wouldn't. you were speaking, sorry, sorry again to interrupt you. As you were speaking, yeah. I was, was thinking about a situation where a child maybe has a really badly injured leg and we've been trying for years to, mm -hmm. to go along with rehabilitation and saving the leg. And maybe by seven, they say, I've had enough of the leg. I really think I'd be better off with an amputation yeah. and prosthesis than, than dragging this useless leg around. Yeah. Uh, so that's not just about bullying. That's no, and, 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 and I, think, I think we need, to, we need to listen really powerfully to children like that. I mean, they're, they're telling us, they're basically telling us um, what's in their best interest. And, and there's no reason in a case like that to think that they're wrong. Um, and and it, they still can't overrule their parents, but I think it is an opportunity to have a family discussion. Um, and, 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 and if the parents aren't listening to their child, then, then maybe assisting that process as the clinician. Terrific. Thanks, well, Doug. Now, I have to hand back to you, John. I, like Ros, I'm getting very excited. But well, I think we're all getting <laughs> excited. And, uh, but we well, do have John, to... John, there, there, there were a bunch of things in the chat that I, I feel compelled. One important string that you guys missed that I think it's really important to clarify. Um, that, that animal was not a wolf. <laughs> This is the big stuff we're getting it to. Was, it. it was a red fox, even though it was black. Um, so the, um, when the red foxes are kits, and this was, these were baby, there were about six of them playing in the road, believe it or not. Um, they're often dark, and, and then they change color as they become adults. So that's actually what that was. It's a red fox. Yeah, I, I like the metaphor that needs explaining, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> sort of the evolving, the evolving adolescent. Uh, that actually was going to be my last question, so you, you've answered it. But but thank you very much. I think um, uh, if you were here, I'd I'd want to give you a big hug, but I wouldn't be allowed to. Um, it's been a really good session. I think it's kicked off the deciding with children conference in a fantastic way. I think you can sense through the chat the uh, the excitement and the interest uh, and I think the recognition from this group at Children's uh, Hospital and University, just, you know, how important children are and, and how much we need to listen to them and, and bring their voice uh, forward. That was Professor Doug Deacon from the Truman Cat Centre for Paediatric Bioethics in Seattle. The 12th National Paediatric Bioethics Conference was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary and the Humanity Foundation. This podcast was prepared by the Royal Children's Hospital Creative Services with help from Dr Georgina Hall. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a rating and share it with your colleagues and friends. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference held each September, look us up on www.rch .org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics, be inspired. Mm -hmm.